Thanks, Stephanie, and to um, everyone else that has been helping with um, the liturgy this morning. Um, one of my favorite websites in the world is uh, tvtropes.org. You can look it up uh, later this afternoon. I will often have like 10 or 12 tabs open of tvtropes.org. It's it's like a wiki of recurring themes and motifs in TV and film uh, and in literature and comics. So tropes such as never accepted in one's hometown. You're a celebrated hero. This is the explanation of this trope. You're a celebrated hero. Everyone knows your name. The kids want to grow up to be just like you. And the people may even be selling merchandise based off of you, at least in places other than the town that you came from. Subgenres of the this genre include all the other reindeer and uh, my favorite Germans love David Hasselhoff. One of the most popular examples of this trope on the site is, uh, it's not Jesus, but it's uh, Harry Potter. You see, Harry Potter is a, a big shot at Hogwarts, but at home, he's just a middle schooler who lives under the stairs. Well, Jesus, Mark tells us, comes back to his hometown on the heels of a number of miracles and healings and these large crowds that have been following him around and hanging on his every word. And he comes to his home synagogue and it first appears that, hey, his neighbors are thrilled. Welcome home, Jesus. Mark tells us many were amazed, but apparently many weren't. Many in the town, it turns out, are muggles. (laughs) You might be something special at wizard school, but around here, you're just Harry Potter. You're just a school-age little boy. Jesus, you may have slayed demons in Garissa. You may have calmed storms, but around here, you're just Jesus the carpenter. You're the son of Mary. We know all of your siblings. Now, this kind of thing is often similar to our response when someone we know, someone we grew up with, someone we went to school with does something extraordinary. How can this person, this person that did woodwork for our family that I used to cheat off of in Hebrew class, how can he be famous and influential? Or even more than that, how can he be the son of, of God. Now, some of us love this I knew them when opportunity. We've had a brush with greatness and we're delighted to see someone from our hometown make it big. Others respond like the people of Nazareth or like the Dursleys. They respond with skepticism, with jealousy, with outright condescension. Now, Mark has gone out of his way to demonstrate the uniqueness and the unmistakable power of Jesus. He's stared down the religious leaders. He's calmed storms. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. He's even raised a dead girl. That was just a few verses ago, only to come home and to hear, meh, just not interested, just 
why don't you find your way out of back out of town, Jesus? Here they want to remind him that he's just the carpenter. That is, he's nothing special. He's just a construction worker. He's a day laborer like the rest of them. Nazareth was only around a couple hundred, maybe 300 people at this point. So not only does practically everyone in the town know Jesus and his family, but the men have probably worked with him on repeatedly on job sites. Now, imagine your response if, if one of your coworkers quits their job because they've gotten really into religion. They start preaching about injustice. They sell their house and they become this itinerant minister living among the poor and hanging out with the diseased and the dispossessed. They spend their time calling out religious hypocrites and very powerful and very dangerous people. They lead this little gang who is protesting segregation and racism and division and religious moralism. They've become so radical that lately they've been put on government watch lists and they want you to join them. Now we might agree with some of their aims, but hey, let's not get carried away. We got to be realistic. We have jobs. We have bills to pay. We've got kids in college. So perhaps we start looking for reasons to exempt ourselves from being quite so radical, especially given the fact that just a few months ago, he was just Kevin the custodian. And now he has these delusions of grandeur. He believes that he's carrying the message of God. A rationale for turning down Jesus's dangerous message wasn't that difficult for his friends and neighbors to come up with. No matter what stories may have been circulating about him, he would always be just the local handyman in Nazareth. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that you should quit your job and follow your friend at work who's gotten really into God. You probably shouldn't. But what Mark does want us to see is how God's message often comes to us through instruments that we are inclined to ignore and that his power is always at home among the commonplace things of the world through water, through baptism, through meals together, through rest, through wine, through sickness, through loneliness, through everyday work, and through even day laborers like Jesus. Not only is he just the carpenter who's worked on our house, how can he be the son of God, but he's also Mary's son. And this is more than just, hey, we know your mom. They're likely implying that he's a bastard of the literal sort. To label a first century Jew the son of his mother rather than of his father would have been a terrible insult and would have hinted in this case in a rather indecent way about Jesus's presumed illegitimacy. 
So not only they're thinking, can we dismiss his message because he's merely a carpenter, but also because he's the son of immorality. We believe that that which is holy doesn't travel through that which is profane. The word of God can't come to us from such a vulgar origin story. But what they consider disqualifying is in fact the point. You see, God intentionally undermines our moralism and our prudery by Jesus's origin story. He's the son of Rahab. He's the son of Bathsheba in the genealogy we get in Matthew. And he has a mother who was knocked up on her wedding night, or before her wedding night. He doesn't have the right religious credentials. He keeps company with rogues and prostitutes, and his family is a total mess. This is who God expects us to follow. This is who God expects us to listen to. For all of these reasons, and perhaps others, Jesus doesn't get the benefit of the doubt in his hometown. And Mark says something curious about this. Did you catch it? Jesus could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. It seems like Mark is telling us here that something in Jesus' hometown has artificially limited his power. The lack of faith in and around Nazareth is something like kryptonite to Jesus' message. Could that be right? Is Jesus unable to work miracles when those around him do not have faith? Well, on one hand, we can answer this with an emphatic no, even from what we've read so far only in Mark. Jesus heals many people without any reference to that person's faith. And yet we see, we see God throughout the Bible, or and we see God throughout the Bible, working immediately in our world and independent of the faith of the recipient. And yet there's still this consistent invitation, which Jesus repeats, that faith is in fact an indispensable instrument of the work of God. Now, I think what Mark is saying here, that lack of faith isn't necessarily about the absence of faith, as if the town was merely ambivalent, or that it means it's lacking in a sufficient amount of faith. To Mark, a lack of faith summarizes this town's opposition to Jesus, its intentional lack of willingness to give him a listen, to hear him out. You see, throughout Mark, faith is a means of participating in God's healing purposes. Faith is the instrument of participating in God's healing purposes. It's a willingness to hear and respond to 
the prophetic word. And we saw back in chapter 3 the, that the sin that is unforgivable is basically refusing to listen to Jesus. That's the sin against the Holy Spirit. It is refusing to listen to the Holy Spirit's work in and through Jesus. Faith is a, a willingness to hear and respond to prophetic, the prophetic word, even when, or especially when, it tells us stuff that we don't want to hear. His friends and family had no doubt heard or even seen his power up close. In fact, Mark tells us that Jesus did lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them while he was in his hometown. So it's not just by reputation that they know Jesus to be a person of particular power. They've witnessed it. They've seen it in their midst. The evidence is there for all to see that Jesus is more than just the town handyman. But the issue for faith, friends, is not really about proof. And it's not really about demonstrations of power. But that these people were rejecting Jesus as a prophet. And a prophet, friends, isn't someone who tells the future. A prophet is someone who tells the truth. And the truth was not welcome in his hometown, just as the truth is often not welcome in our own hearts. These people didn't lack evidence of Jesus' power, of his divinity. What they lacked were hearts that were open to what he was saying. Instead, they dismissed him because he was so common, so vulgar, so familiar. This is a, a very similar tactic that, to what we deploy when we want to ignore or reject someone's message. When we hear a prophetic word that would challenge our narrative worlds, that would invite us to make changes that we don't want to make, to see the world through an unfamiliar or an uncomfortable lens. What we do is we put an unsavory label on that person or that movement. If we can affiliate them with a group that we despise or distrust or an ideology that is just known to be faulty, then we don't have to listen. You see, proof... Facts, truth, as we've seen very well in our recent days, they have little force to penetrate our ideology, to penetrate our tribal defenses. You see, believing Jesus, having faith, to use Mark's terminology, would, would have put this entire town on the watch list of both the Roman Empire and the Jewish religious establishment, the powerful guarantors of the status quo. It would have meant taking up the burdens and concerns of the poor and the disadvantaged and the disinherited that typically would have been invisible to us or impediments in our daily movements around the city. 
It would have meant disassociating from the economic, the social, the religious power structures of greed and oppression and aligning their lives instead with those who are exiled, those who are forgotten. And it would have meant doing the hard internal work of giving up one's status and security and taking refuge in the promises of God instead. This is all far more difficult, far more demanding than just dismissing Jesus as a hometown weirdo. To say that Jesus could not do deeds of power probably goes too far. But the unbelief of Jesus' own people did have a restrictive effect in Nazareth, just as it does in our own lives and in the life of our church. Because faith is the means of participating in God's healing purposes among us. And Jesus' new kingdom, Jesus' church, is a volunteer society. God doesn't typically override our resistance, and he doesn't typically work in places where he is unwanted. We'll see in the next few chapters, I think we read that Jesus sends out his, these laborers into the cities around and tells them to seek hospitality, but if not, to leave and to brush off the dust from their feet. God is at work typically in places where he is invited, where he is wanted, where there is a faith that can participate with his healing purposes. He invites us, he invites us into his upside-down kingdom. He invites us to take up our cross. He invites us to find life by losing it. And we will do everything we can to dismiss that calling or to take, take it up partially or to even use Jesus as an excuse to not live a life that is costly, to not inspect our prejudices, to not ask the hard questions of ourselves. Jesus invites us to do these things, and they're all things that he did himself. Jesus, you see, loses his life for hours. Jesus is dismissed by his friends and his neighbors, his hometown, on our behalf. He is rejected in his hometown in order that we can find our forever home in him. So let's invite him both into our individual hearts as well as into our church and ask that when God shows up, he would find faith in our community. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would show up in unusual ways in our lives as they are scattered around our city and as uh, one day, hopefully in the near future, they are gathered together again in person. And Father, I just pray as we think about that time that you would show up in our community in a new way, in a fresh way, in an unexpected way, in a way that maybe we have to wrestle with, maybe that we 
have to be invited repeatedly into because it's a vision of a new world, a vision of Christianity that perhaps we discounted before or didn't do business with. Father, I pray that our church would be a community of faith and that therefore the word of Jesus, his prophetic word, would take root in and among us and through us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table, would you confess your faith with me? This morning we are using the Heidelberg Confession. Question 45. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. We see in the gospel that Jesus gives up everything. He gives up friends. He gives up his family. He gives up his hometown. He gives up his life so that we can be joined to him forevermore. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body. It is given for you. Eat this all in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this all in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread or you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, for many centuries, Christians have proclaimed the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, he is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God, and they're for the people of God. So feed on him in your hearts by faith and with great thanksgiving. Take a few moments now to uh, serve uh, yourself communion or to serve someone uh, that is with you, and then we will join back together in singing in just a moment.
Thank you.